All right. Uh, I'd love to hear comments about Sunday. Did you learn anything about First Peter that uh, that challenged you, or that uh, that sets us up for uh, for this? If you're online, unmute. I think we can all hear you. Uh, but uh, if you're in the room, um, any anything that uh, that you learned that was interesting about First Peter and about how this all sets up as a commentary on our culture? Okay, the four imperatives at the end. Yeah. Well, in uh, again, we were uh, we were talking about the the difference in the language. In English, the uh, the things at the very beginning of chapter two where he says, put aside anger and malice. And th those sound like pretty strong commands, but in the Greek, those are not imperatives, they're transitives. So he is he's connecting what it means to love one another. So he's not necessarily telling us to put away those things about the culture. He's talking about our love for each other. I'm gonna tell you a story on Sunday that you're going to love that talks about the demonstration of how the love that the church shows impacts the way the culture uh, uh, handles love. And, and that's where he was trying to go with that. But the four imperatives, the, the, the direct commands were um, put on hope or be holy in your conduct love one another and crave the pure milk of the word. Uh, I, I just, I, I love that. That, And basically Peter is saying, these are individual things, right? So love one another is collective, but it's also individual, right? We, we, we want to be known as a church that loves each other, but we, he's saying you as an individual, here is a way of holiness. Here, here, is, here are some very concrete uh, aspects of holiness that if you continue to fix your eyes on hope. And, oh, this is so hard. We're in such an anxious culture. And we're, every time we get another news bulletin from the CDC, we're going, this thing's never going to end. And yet he says, we're, we're going to get through this. He, he says, we're not getting around it. We're getting through it. And, and, and there will be an end to this. Well, there will be uh, 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 another an, an side, so to speak. So he's telling us that, uh, that we've got to put on hope. And then he's saying, be holy. And I... I spoke at Georgia State a um, month or so ago, and I asked them to think about all of the decisions that they had made in the last 168 hours, the last week, seven days, right? So all of the decisions that you've made, the little ones, the big ones, where to eat, what to eat, what to watch, what to surf what to wear, uh, who to talk to, who not to talk to. Did you set aside time for prayer? You know, all the decisions that we make in a week. And then if you think about a checklist, how many of those would fall into the category 
this moved me towards holiness. This moved me towards holiness. Here's a decision that helped me to be holy. Here's a decision that that probably distracted me from holiness. Here's a, a decision that God probably had to redeem or I had to repent of. And, and so you can understand when Peter says, you want to make a difference, keep your hope alive, be holy, love each other, and then crave God, crave God. We were, uh, I did a guest teaching for the men's class. I guess that's Bill's Sunday school class last Sunday. And we talked about Jesus and the Beatitudes and the, the reason he said, you are the salt of the earth. And the, I asked the men, what, what is it that salt does? And they said, of course, it preserves, it seasons, it heals, it irritates. And one of them, um, uh, Bill Thaxton said, and it creates thirst creates thirst and i'm going when jesus said you are the salt of the earth then one of our roles as disciples is to create thirst for those who don't and when he says crave the spiritual milk crave the pure milk of the word he's saying to us this is thirst this is, this is a sweet tooth. This is, this is you fixating on that taco because that's all you can think about if that's what you want. I want a taco. Um, and, and so it's interesting that it's an imperative, that, that he's telling us to desire something. He's commanding us to desire something. Well, let's dive into chapter two. Um, so he starts off, um, the verses that we covered on Sunday, rid yourselves, uh, the, the transitive or the supporting statement to the imperative that follows. <clears throat> but then in chapter 2, verse 4, he switches metaphors. He changes um, uh, illustrations altogether. He's been talking about babies and milk. And now he's talking about masonry. As you come to him, the living stone. Now, I am interested in your English Bibles. Is the word stone capitalized in your Bible? In the New International, it's capitalized. And it's, uh, it's capitalized because it's uh, uh, quoting a scripture that definitely refers to the Messiah. It's, uh, it's quoting Psalm 122, uh, I'm sorry, 118.22, <clears throat> and, and it is a, Psalm 118.22 is a messianic psalm. It's a, it's a psalm that is definitely um, uh, speaking of Jesus, and so it's a, it's a messianic psalm, and so uh, the living stone the reason the New International capitalizes is it doesn't want us to leave any doubt that it's talking about um, uh, Jesus. So he says, now, 
the 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 section starts out as you come to him how does it read in your bibles therefore therefore come or therefore as you come and coming to him what does your say taylor as you come to him all right just a, a, a bonus that's really the way that the great commission is written as you go into all the world preach baptize make disciples so there's this this assumption that you would come this isn't a direct invitation this is a an assumption as you come to him as you come to the living stone now um anybody got any notes in your bible as to what the living stone is what is what is that referring to some versions say cornerstone and some versions have a different word anybody have esv it uses the uh the word capstone um in uh, and the quote from Psalm 118 22 uses the word capstone. Um, this is one of those things where it's an interesting distinction between the two words, but it doesn't make any difference because a cornerstone holds the building true, a capstone holds the arch together. So the the, the idea is the same. In Psalms, it uses the word capstone. And when Peter uh, translated, he uses the word cornerstone. Either way, you're talking about a foundational piece that holds the rest of it together. So a cornerstone has to be set true for the building to be true. A capstone has to be set in place. It's the, the keystone at the top of an arch that, that basically architecturally holds it all together. And so he says, he, he's introducing a new metaphor and, and his point here is that God chose him and people rejected him. God chose him and people rejected him. So he says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Let's hold that for a second. So the, the word play here is great. And it's the same word play as Jesus used at Caesarea Philippi. Do you remember when we talked about uh, in Matthew chapter 16, where the disciples are in the garden at uh, Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee? And Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And uh, they said, oh, Elijah, Moses, and then Peter, uh, he said to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Jesus replied and he said, uh, you are Simon, son of John, but now you will be Cephas. Or the Greek for Cephas is Petras, which means little rock. 
And then he said, and you are the Petros, the masculine form of the Greek, which means big rock. You are the rock upon which I will build my church. So you, Simon, are now Peter, Petra, feminine version of the verb little rock. A piece from the bigger rock would be a better way to say it. And he does the same wordplay here. Peter does. He said, you are living stones, big stone, Jesus, capstone, cornerstone. And then he says to the people, you are going to be living stones as well. But in the New International, it capitalizes stone for Jesus. And then to make sure that it identifies normal people in verse five, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're probably not going to get any further than this. There's so much here. You ever seen uh, masons at work? If they set the cornerstone, then they they put a string on the cornerstone and stretch it across, and they lay every stone in the course based on the the line that the cornerstone gives them. And so he's saying here, I've set the cornerstone. The builders rejected it, but I'm using it. And that cornerstone is Jesus. Psalm 118, Messianic Psalm. No question that it's pointing for the Jewish people to the Messiah. And now he's saying, now you are the living stones, the precious stones that build what? God's temple. Was he talking about the Jewish temple? I mean, this sounds like very Jewish language, doesn't it? You remember on Sunday, we said that some of these people were Jews that had been run out of Rome, and some of them were Gentiles that had turned away from a life of excess. And he said, both of your former ways are useless. But he's taken great care here to talk about Jesus as the cornerstone, the church as made up of people who are individual stones. And then what happens there? He says that you are built into a spiritual house, a temple, to be a priesthood. Now, in the Jewish temple, who had access to the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest and only once a year. What is he saying to us about access? He says, you are offering spiritual sacrifices. You're you're offering the sacrifices that formerly only the high priest had access. But because the living cornerstone, the one rejected by the builders, is Jesus, he has provided you an access. He tore the veil of the temple. He's provided you access, and now you're going to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, bonus question. Would Peter have known about Paul's letter to the Romans?
Well, it was it was obviously earlier than this. We maybe we we think that Peter and Paul were both in Rome when Peter wrote this because they were both executed shortly after that. Why am I asking that? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is what the same word Peter uses right here. He uses acceptable sacrifices. So Paul in Romans 12 says that a living sacrifice is acceptable and pleasing to God. And here Peter says you are precious living stones built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so there's a, a convergence here of the theology of both Peter and Paul to say the access to the holiest place has been granted. What happens in the holiest place? One thing. Yeah, but what's the one thing that happens in the Holy of Holies? When did he go in there? What was it called? The Day of Atonement. Atonement. That was the day when the, when the high priest said, God, will you forgive the sins of the people? Will you accept this sacrifice? Would you accept this, this lamb? Would you accept these doves? Will you accept this incense? Will you accept this so that people can be forgiven? Pretty amazing. Okay, let's get a few more verses and... Um, and then we'll uh, we'll call it a night. He says, for in scripture it says, and this is where he quotes, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone, and the one who trusted him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. What did Paul say about the difference between those who believe the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who believe it's freedom? So that it's obvious that these two men had spent some time together. It's obvious that they'd had some conversation. It's interesting that Acts really doesn't record this. Acts really doesn't tell us that during Nero's crazy in the head last few years like between say i think um somebody helped me who's a bible scholar what year did rome burn somewhere around 64 yeah so rome was burned in about 64 a.d and the christians were largely blamed for the fire but everybody now pretty much thinks nero set the fire in order to rebuild the slums, but he blamed the Christian, executed lots of them. The Colosseum was built in 72 AD in order to uh, find creative ways to slaughter people. But in 64, Rome burned. Most people think Paul and Peter were martyred in about 68. So 
I, I'm relatively sure they were together in Rome for the last part of their lives. Then he starts another metaphor. Jump down to verse 9. We're going to talk about this some on Sunday. He has already identified that the church is built of living stones. So cornerstone, living stones, courses are laid. In a minute, he's going to tell us that that each stone has a function. You know, each, each, each member has a function. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts in just a, a minute. But now he shifts gears and he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare. There's one of those purpose clauses, the Hannah clause we talked about. Um, if you got online after we started uh, the Greek um, clause, the Hannah, H-I-N-A, the Hannah clause is a purpose clause when you read in the Bible in order or so that it's a purpose clause. And it's a very strong uh, statement that says, pay attention to what's about to happen because this happened in order that that might happen. So he says, you all have been chosen. And he uses several adjectives. You are a royal priesthood. That's by the way, where we get the term priesthood of believers. You are a royal priesthood. He, he, he said already, you all have access to the Holy of Holies. You're all offering sacrifices. You don't have to offer sacrifice because the, 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 the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he was sacrificed once and for all for us. But we all have access to approach the Holy God in the holy place to ask for forgiveness. We all have that access. And now he says, you are royal. You're a chosen. You're a holy nation. You're a set-apart people. What does the word holy mean? Set-apart. means set-apart. It's separate. It, it, it's not really a religious word. It, it, it means that it's, a, it's, a, it's something that's sacred, something that's set-apart. So holy means different. It means that we're, we're, one of my mentors said that disciples are distinctively different from the culture around us. That's not that we do holy things. It's just that we are, did I quote Woodrow Wilson? No, that was in the Sunday school class. Woodrow Wilson tells a story, President Woodrow Wilson of being in a barber shop when the evangelist D.L. Moody came in the, the barber shop. And he said that when he came in, the atmosphere changed. All of a sudden it was church. Didn't, didn't preach. Didn't, didn't do Jesus talk. It's just that he had a presence. It's like when in Acts chapter four, when they were talking about Peter and John, they said they are unlearned, unschooled fishermen but they recognize them as having been with Jesus. There is just this sense of, of salt and light that we create thirst. We, we expose darkness and God does this. Uh, the language of election here is very, very strong. And, and I don't want to get into predestination and all that stuff here, but the, the emphasis is that God is doing all of this. 
That is not us. It's not, we don't choose, we don't initiate, we don't start. God has chosen this sequence so that if we will be holy, here's the Hannah clause, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That you may declare his praises. This is why you're chosen. This is why you're royal. This is why you're holy. This is why you're set apart. It is a it is an on-purpose ministry. And your purpose is to declare his praise. Now, we, we've got a lot of scripture left, but let me just dive through uh, two more verses here. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. You remember Sunday I said that it, back in, I think it's verse 18 in chapter 1. Um, he said, um, for you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life. From your useless past. And so now here he's saying, Taylor, once you were not a people, now you're a people. Once you were not a nation, Nancy, now you're a nation. Once you were not holy, Gary, now you're holy. Once you were not separate, now you're separate. Eight, verse 118, you had a useless way of life, an empty way of life, but now you've been chosen. Now you've been called. And so the, the, the emphasis is not on did God elect me to be saved or did I choose to be saved? The emphasis on God's sovereignty, he did all of it. He he called us into himself. Did we respond? Yes. Could we have said no? Yes. But now we have received mercy. And so then he uses both the words. Sunday, I use the words um, alienation and accommodation. I said he uses two words to talk about us as aliens, exiles, and sojourners. He uses them both here. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers. So your exiles and your sojourners, your travelers, your tourists, your pilgrims, you're passing through. Whatever way you look at it, you're not home. This is not your home. You're passing through. And he's helping us understand the transitory aspect of planet Earth. And so he says, you're aliens and strangers to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. So in verse 11 in chapter 2, he introduces something that he says a couple of times. And on Sunday, we're going to look at chapter 4 in more detail. But in verse four, chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. They heap abuse on you. And so he, he, he bridges in chapter 2. And, and in chapter 3, he gets very specific. That's where he talks about uh, our, our relationships, our 
our relationships with masters or employers or spouses or whatever, uh, that, that's a separate thing. But the bridge here is he's going to say, um, he bridges from chapter 2, verse 11. He says, you to abstain from these sinful desires, which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and they glorify God. Chapter 4, verse 3. You've been spent enough time in the past doing all these things. But the pagans, the, the people who watch you, verse 4, they think it's strange that you don't plunge in with them. And so our back to the purpose clause, you are chosen, you are called, you are holy, you are separate so that you may proclaim God's praises, so that you may show a better way. In chapter 4, he's going to say, love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And so all through this, he's saying, you are in a culture that is hostile, that is full of unspeakable acts. He, he goes he gets in a list in chapter four, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, debauchery. But he says, don't you don't do these things because you are called to not accommodate the culture. And not alienate the culture, but to redeem it, to transform it. These things are so that you may declare the praises of God, so that others can see you. Uh, he says the same thing in, in verse uh, chapter 19 of verse uh, chapter 4. So then those who suffer according to the will of God commit themselves to their faithful creator continue to be good chapter 3 verse 13 who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good but even if you should suffer for what's right you are blessed don't fear what they fear don't be frightened with what frightens them and so he's drawing a line between the church and the culture but he's not giving us permission not to be in it not giving us permission to just say I, I can't love those people. They're, 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 I'm just going to commit them to perdition because they don't deserve any of this. They, they curse God. They curse God's people. How in the world could they be redeemed? Because God is still in the business of calling people to himself. All right. On Sunday, we're going to talk about what it is to be the church. And so I'll explore that just a little bit, how we conquer this culture with love.